You are never too senior to be wrong, never too junior to have the best idea. How can we do all domain operations, but really front load that non-kinetic power projection? So I don't know the term game changer is what I would use, but I do think that it'll be hard to manage escalation with hypersonic weapons. And I agree with those who say that hypersonic weapons warrant new doctrine. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center with an Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabra, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Lydia Kostopoulos. Lydia is the science and technology subject matter expert at U.S. SOCOM's Joint Special Operations University, where she's working on developing technology-related education for the soft professional. She'll be talking with us today about envisioning the future, non-kinetic power projection, and the impact of emerging technology on the battlefield. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Lydia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Luke. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to have you on. We've been trying to have you on for a long time, a long time member of the mad scientist community. You know, you have a really diverse and interesting background. You've uh, done envisioning the future of innovation for special operations. You've designed women's work fashion. You've taught cybersecurity in the UAE. Can you kind of tell our audience a little bit more about how you came along this really winding and intriguing path? How did you get here? I suppose it just happened. Um, I just kept doing things that excited me and things I wanted to do. And I think a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to uh, 9-11 playing a big role in getting international security. And I did like all my studies focusing on that and counterterrorism and I just kind of found that terrorists were uh, evolving in, in some of their tactics and using cyberspace. And that kind of led me on another path of technology, looking at how does technology impact the character of warfare? And one thing led me to another. And now I look at a wide range of technologies and how that affects the changing character of warfare. So you obviously think a lot about that with the future. How do you think about the future? Like, what's your thought process when you're trying to imagine something that hasn't happened? I I think positively about the future. Um, so some of the, the mindsets I bring to the anticipatory assessment works I do, and also like life in general, is I think of technological abundance, which means not scarcity. I don't come from it from a perspective of like zero sum. I come from it from a perspective of abundance that um, technology is going to be more accessible, more available. It's going to do um, good. And from that, you can also look at the flip side and see how that can be harmful in the context of warfare. But I also think about longevity, health, wellness, and sustainability. And you may be thinking like, okay, how does this help with anticipating armed conflict? And actually like everything. So for example, macro trends um, around environmental sustainability can tell us where we can anticipate conflict in certain areas of the world because of resource scarcity. Um, macro trends in demographics can tell us the distribution of age groups in different parts of the world, which can be something that um, we need to think about and manage. So for example, if we look at the US or other industrialized countries uh, in Europe, as well as industrialized countries in Asia, we're seeing the younger population decline. So fewer people are having babies. 
And so what does that mean for the portion of that population that's still active in the labor market? You know, we're looking at 2030, 2040, 2050 down, down the line. So in, in a couple of decades, we're going to see our population skewed more towards a larger, more senior citizen population. And so, you know, that, that also gives you kind of a, a way to think about how we'd want to engage in conflict in that kind of environment. And so when it comes to technological abundance, I pay very close attention to how certain technologies are evolving and becoming more accessible to different actors and what that means for our defense posture. So, for example, looking at how surveillance technology is used by protesters or how drone technology was used um, recently in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in October. So that's kind of how I approach it. Absolutely. Thank you. And previously, you've kind of discussed another aspect, which is really like the importance of non-kinetic power projection. So, you know, we talk a lot, obviously, with the Army about things that go boom. But can you tell us more about that? How how does it fit into the greater context of the things that we have to consider? We're talking about great power competition and multi-domain operations. How does non-kinetic power projection really fit into that? I think we don't have a shared sense of reality. And what I mean by that is that I think that some people don't understand how cyber plays a role, for example, in these like non-kinetic ways of delivering effects, even by asymmetric actors, even by asymmetric technologies. And McMaster talked about strategic empathy and strategic narcissism. He did not invent these terms, but he, he brought them up earlier this year. And what he was saying is, is that uh, we need to be more strategically empathetic towards how others are approaching the combat space and, and less strategically narcissistic in the sense that we shouldn't think about how we're going to go to war in the way we want to go to war. So obviously it'd be lovely to fight the war we want to fight, but it doesn't work that way. We end up fighting the war that, that our time presents us with, that technology presents us with in the time that we're fighting. Um, when we respond to aggression from our adversaries, it's the kind of their choosing. We don't get to decide, hey, please come and, and come with a fleet of ships because I have a big fleet that I'd like to use. And, you know, you could put that in all services. But so what I think that we need to, to think more about is how cyber attacks, for example, can play a role. The recent solar winds cyber attack that affects um, the DOD and other government agencies are an example of this. And this is one attack in a larger string of attacks over the past decade that are giving us a very strong indicator that our near peer and peer competitors, they wish to engage in a different way. And that what, what is that way, right? It, it would indicate that they have a preference for war that involves debilitating C4 and ISR and, and less a war that involves big military platforms, which we're stronger at. And so what I mean by this is that it's, it's a moment where we should look at how does information, how does EW, how does cyber, how, how can we do all domain operations, but really front load that non-kinetic power projection. And because of these kinds of technologies like cyber and information, the way that we can um, almost change behavior or thinking of a nation um, with effective uh, information attacks, the, the tempo of our conflict, conflict has increased. So the military needs to think about how it's preserving the decision space of military leadership to be able to manage escalation. Again, think about cyber attacks in, in, a, in the context of you're, you're literally about to engage in a decisive conflict. Can a cyber attack really just stop that altogether, stop you from being able to act? And this goes into the unrestricted warfare doctrine and that Sun Tzu kind of ideology of how can you win without fighting? 
So I, I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting at, I think, with the whole we should pay more attention to non-kinetic power projection. So not quite uh, we'll build it and they'll come. We have to actually adapt. Yes, um, I think so. so talking about speed a little bit, and we've been challenged right now with a battlefield where speed is really increasing all over the place from hypersonics to cyber actions to machine learning. So how does decision over match relate to that? What is that? How do we achieve that? That is a really good question. And um, I, so I want to start by saying that I've, I've never supported the use of the words, you know, dominant superiority or overmatch, because everyone just simply has their own idea of what that means and their vision of what that looks like. And so to give an example, having like air superiority in, in technological capability and firepower didn't mean that we were able to easily overcome the VEO threat. So when it comes to decision overmatch in the context of emerging technologies, like AI or, or quantum sensors or big data or uh, A2AD, the decision overmatch we should strive for is really advantageous or competitive situational awareness in relation to sensors, calm survivability. You know, keep in mind we're, we need to make sure that we can overcome A2AD issues and um, also communication latency. And how can we deliver that, that speed of situational awareness? to where it needs to get to, to make decisions. And so I think that's a, that's a huge piece when we talk about the increasing speed. I think we need to pay attention to how are algorithms being leveraged to get a better situational awareness so that humans can act on that. And if someone else has a better, better picture of the operational environment than we do, then obviously we're at a disadvantage to be able to, to act decisively. So I want to ask you a question about hypersonic technology now, and, and we can discuss this in the, in the broadest terms, hypersonic weapons, hypersonic vehicles, delivery systems. What is your take on hypersonic technology? Is it a game changer? Is it overhyped? What's your opinion there? So um, I think that we need to have more conversations about hypersonics. I think what matters is the deployable availability of capable and credible hypersonic missiles. And I think that once, well, that does exist, but once it becomes um, something that nation states who have them start to verbalize their intent to use them, I think that it will have the same deterrent effect as nuclear missiles. And actually, Luke, at the beginning, you mentioned um, designing clothes. So I have a set of earrings that's coming out for my fashion label. And uh, the thesis of this, this set, the first set, is called Hypersonic Deterrence. And um, it's basically a Nordic minimalist design. Uh, and the earrings show the ballistic flight path and the hypersonic glide vehicle flight path. And there are rhinestones in the points where the, um, the radar detects them in their trajectory. And it's a really compelling visual because basically by the time a radar can detect a hypersonic missile, it's too late. Um, I recommend the hypersonics weapons primer that the Atlantic Council recently published. They get into the technicalities of the different types of hypersonic weapons platforms and they give scenarios. And um, in one scenario, they estimated that the realistic time from radar detection to impact was like five minutes which is not enough time to validate that it is an attack or make a response decision. Also, there are technical engineering challenges of being able to intercept um, something at, at those high speeds. So the US, Russia, and China are presently the most advanced nations in the hypersonic space, but India and Australia expect to deploy hypersonic weapons in 2025, which is very soon. So I don't know if it's the term game changer is what I would use, but I do think that um, it'll be hard to manage escalation with hypersonic weapons 
and it'll make it difficult for political leadership to um, off-ramp in such a scenario. So I do see it as a strategic weapon, and I agree um, with those who say that hypersonic weapons warrant new doctrine. Yeah, so it may, may not be a game changer in your opinion, but comparable to nuclear weapons, so something significant. Um, so we've talked a lot about emerging and disruptive technologies, but one of the areas you focused on before is humans and human performance. So how do we as humans integrate all these technologies into our world and the way we operate, and how do we keep up? I am so passionate about human performance. It started around like seven years ago when I started um, high interval intensity training. And then I stumbled upon Cameron Diaz's body book about nutrition, wellness, and then Arianna Huffington's book, Sleep Revolution. This is a, a, a great book for anyone who burns the candle at both ends and thinks they can still perform with four to six hours of sleep. So she basically starts the book with her story of how she collapsed and woke up in a pool of her blood because of that kind of attitude. The other famous book uh, about sleep Bill Gates recommends is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And you might be saying, okay, so like, what does this have to do with integrating technologies into our world and the military keeping up? The other month, there was a, a workshop I attended, which focused on brain performance. And there was a former special forces gentleman who is a full-time researcher on neuroprotection. And he specifically focuses on what he calls left of the bang. He's not interested in TBIs or post-concussions. And, you know, he's had his fair share of them but he's most interested in everything that can be done to get to that cognitive edge before the bang. So he looks at how the mind can be taxed, where the mistakes are gonna come up, you know, how to be predictive of it. And there are many ways to do this, but to summarize and total spoiler alert, uh, key things are what you eat, your calorie expenditure and sleep among other things. And so understanding how all these things affect cognitive performance allows you to mitigate and manage performance drops, but also boost them. So. Now let's talk about that and managing technology. The uh, features, concepts, and visions of all the services uh, and their respective soft components involve technology and more of it than exists today. So as we look to leverage algorithms as decision support mechanisms and augmented reality or 3D visualizations of the battlefield and simultaneously communicate with devices and people, our mental bandwidth will be stretched. And I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone can relate to like your phone like beeping and, and having emails that you have to respond to and, and you're in and out of Zoom calls, being able to just personally manage in, in this kind of environment, you have to think about how your brain is being taxed and how you can optimize your performance as well to be able to take in all these inputs. It's an interesting fact that I learned was that 70% of the information our brain receives comes from our eyes. And if we're overtaxing them, we can deplete our cognitive sharpness, which will resort to mental shortcuts to make decisions and and mistakes that could happen. And obviously those mistakes could be lethal in the battlefield. So uh, there's, there's much more to say, but I will say that um, I am excited that um, uh, I'm gonna be joining a multi-nation military research effort on human performance enhancement. And I look forward to, to delving deeper into this thinking. And um, I would love to connect with anyone who's interested in this area. That's yeah, a really interesting answer because um... I'm a big proponent of a healthy sleep regimen, and I think that's honestly one of the one of the most overlooked aspects, and and probably causes of a lot of our uh, mental shortcomings. Uh, and so I, I'm I'm glad you said that. That's great. I think Matt, if I can just interject, we've 
you know, when we've talked to Andrew Herr before, I think it's one of those not sexy solutions. It's not, it's not gene editing. It's not even pills you take or human performance enhancement in the biologically enhanced kind of way. It's just very much back to basics in a sense, getting a, getting a sense of well-being um, for that for that soldier and warfighter and like how do they operate and, and Andrew talked before about circadian rhythms and and how much more that affects um, than per se getting people on these performance enhancing drugs or, or regimens or things like that. Yeah, I also think there's probably a little bit of survivor bias in it too because you often hear of very successful people who say I do all of this on four hours sleep so you can too and obviously they're usually the exceptions not the rule so it, it, it gets that kind of gravitas around it. Um, so I want to move on, and, and I want to ask you a very broad question here, Lydia, um, and, and it's very open-ended. What are we missing? What's the Army not thinking about enough right now? So I think the Army is doing a great job of trying to get ahead of the next revolutions in land warfare. Um, I'm always impressed by the thinking that comes out of the Army's TRADOC, and I'm a big fan of the multi-domain thinking that General Perkins did during his tenure. I see that as an operational mind shift piece. And um, I think that the Futures Command is a consolidated place for edge thinking. And I don't have illusions that doing that is easy. I, I understand that it takes a lot of work to stand up a command, build a culture, enable the talent to deliver and affect change that we can see in the battlefield. So what, what's the Army not thinking enough about? I think the Army isn't thinking enough about how it needs to reduce bureaucracy. <laughs> Again, something not sexy. How to become a leaner organization. Even its uh, military decision-making process, the MDMP doctrine for operational planning, I think it needs to be reviewed for an era for, of multi-domain or all-domain warfare, however, whichever term you prefer. But we have compressed decision-making cycles, human-machine teaming, asymmetric actors with increasingly capable capabilities due to the democrat democratization of technology. So is MDMP fit for current purpose? I wonder if that needs to be revisited. And so at SOCOM, we have our podcast, it's called Softcast. Uh, and uh, in one of the first episodes, we had our uh, DCOM say that you are never too senior to be wrong, never too junior to have the best idea. And I think if we can allow more ideas to make their way through, that would be really great. And uh, the Harvard Business Review recently had an article about shadow boards, which is um, comprised of younger employees that would shadow more experienced executive uh, employees. And they would offer different ideas that come from a different perspective and a less experienced perspective. And there were some great stories there about how people with less experience came up with creative solutions that it was harder for people with like 30 years of experience to come up with because they were more restricted in their thinking. And so I think maybe there's something there that that could be used. So I'd offer that. I think that's a really cool idea. And, and um something that uh, I think goes to the heart of mad scientists where you're, you're looking for outside thinkers outside of the, the stovepipes that we've created here. So I think that's, I think that's a great idea. And along that same lines, um, I want to give you a chance to offer some advice to future innovators. So let's say you had a chance to talk to folks who are in middle school, high school, elementary school, who are going to be the future innovators of the world. What advice do you have and why should they want to be a part of this space? Well, you know, I, I am really excited to see so many young people be enthusiastic about taking part in where our world is going. I mean, if you see the movements around sustainability and environmental protection and all of that, um, I do think that we already can see a consciousness in our youth that I don't feel existed when I was in high school or middle school. Granted, you know, social media didn't exist at that time, 
So, um, but I, I do think that they're motivated. I, I think that when you talk about elementary school, I mean, they have the most beautiful unrestricted imagination. There's really nothing to, to like tell them, hey, be more imaginative. I think it's up to the adults to help them explore their ideas without limitations. Um, and also to make sure that they're not talking to them in a gendered way about what they can and can't do. I think that when it comes to high school students, I think it's really important for them to understand um, themselves and their body. And you might say like, how does this even make sense? And you know, it goes back to performance. It, how can you help yourself be a better person? You know, how does sleep contribute to your learning and to, to developing ideas? Knowing yourself in terms of how you work best for creative ideas. So, so to learn basically how you innovate best and try different ways to innovate. And so, for example, for me, I, I constantly work on trying to get to know myself, like, where can I get in, in my best flow and where I'm in the zone? And what ideas do I need um, to help me think differently? Like when I'm stuck trying to figure out a solution for something. So I think working on the, the mental and, and physical uh, performance of themselves is um, a good way to go. So mindfulness, self-reflection and all of that. And it, it's, not, it's not about technology. There's so many opportunities out there. It really starts with yourself to be able to say, I'm going to go and pursue this. And this is the best way that I know how to, to make things happen, you know? No, I love that approach. And I think that's, I wouldn't even call it counterintuitive, but I think it goes against some of this idea that it's like you just said, you know, let's throw more technology at the problem. And I think I like, really like your approach of self-awareness and, and gaining of understanding of how you innovate best. And some of those people are going to do it very differently. I mean, you have, you have people that still do very well um, with scrum sessions because they're using basic uh, post-it notes um, but that's how they innovate best and you have other people that are using advanced modeling and simulations to learn best so I, I really like that approach just kind of transitioning to what we call our rapid fire questions but take as much time as you like first what technology or trend keeps you up at night I don't think there any one of them keeps me up at night. I, I'm, I, I'm usually really excited about it all. I think in terms of kind of the, the traditional, what keeps you up at night in the negative way, I think for me, it's um, the lack of imagination that is exhibited by many uh, people in positions of authority and power. And also the resistance to change. Because in this decade, we are about to experience more change than in the past like 200 years. And we need as much mental agility as possible. And so for me, I, I think that's what keeps me up at night. The, the resistance to change, the inability to try to see things differently and the lack of imagination. No, absolutely. Love that. And what's something about you that you're willing to share on the podcast that most people might not know. Most people might not know that I used to be a competitive swimmer in high school and college. That is impressive. <laughs> I, Matt, we had a competitive swimmer. We've had, uh, I believe, tennis, ballroom dancing, and a few others. Yeah, I don't want to embarrass myself and say, no, we haven't. And then somebody tweets us that we have, <laughs> but um, I don't remember one thus far. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's fantastic. And I would imagine you have to have a lot of physical self-awareness to, to compete at that level. I'd love to compete again. It just turns out that they don't seem to have like competitions for people in their 30s. But I did see some for like later and it's like, okay, I'll just have to wait until I meet the bracket requirements. I don't know. Uh, honestly, Lydia, I've seen you create card games for disruptive <laughs> technologies. 
I've seen emerging technologies, bingo come from you, a fashion line. I think if you really want to have competitive swimming for people in your age bracket, you could just make it. I'm sure you could do it. It'd be like all domain <laughs> swimming competition. <laughs> all ages. Let's go. Um, so the, the last question, this one kind of tells us more about our guests um, on, on kind of a personal level. What is your favorite movie? Um, I actually don't have a favorite movie. It's, am I the first person to say that? Yeah, we don't accept that as an answer. <laughs> Lieutenant General Wesley, when he came on, topped out with a book, but we allowed that because we worked for him. Um, um, we might be able to let you slide. Is there, is there a movie you enjoy? I, I usually enjoy all like Disney Pixar movies. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Uh, I'm a huge fan. They never disappoint me. I'm just like excited about seeing them all the time. So um, you can prematurely say soul. I can pretty, I, I can't wait to see that movie. Yes. I so could, could you give us your favorite Pixar movie then? I don't have one. I swear I'm not lying. Um, you were doing so well in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Total fail. And, I, and I'm not a flag officer, so this doesn't get to pass. I understand how this works. <laughs> no, absolutely. We'll, we'll give you a pass just because the rest of the interview is so great. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on. Um, first, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience out there? I would like to tell people to really try and push the bounds of their limitations in terms of their imagination and really try to work on understanding themselves and how they perform their best. Um, because ultimately, those I think are, are the biggest skills. You know, one of the soft truths is that it's about people and it's the same thing for everything else. So, I would ask everyone to work on themselves and try and, and be more imaginative and improve their own personal performance. Absolutely. And where can everybody follow you at? Um, you can find me on Twitter at LKCyber. You can find me on my website, LKCyber.com, and you can send me messages there. You can DM me on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, again, at LKCyber, and I'm on LinkedIn. So I'm on all these mediums, except for TikTok. Apparently, that's the place to be these days. <laughs> that, that is, and it, it's also a, a, quite a point of contention, too. <laughs> well, thank you, Lydia, so much for coming on. We had a great time talking with you. And as always, we're so appreciative of you being part of the Mad Sci community. Thank you, Luke, and thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Leah Kostopoulos from the Joint Special Operations University. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.